Again, if you turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 2, and I would invite you to stand for your one more calisthenics. As I read for you Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20 and on through to the end of the chapter. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, with reference to the false teachers, the apostle Peter continues to write and says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn away from the holy commandments handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. What God has graciously provided for the church of all ages is found in this very small yet profound chapter of 2 Peter chapter 2. It is a history of the character and qualities of false teachers. From the very inception of the church, there have been those who have sought to undermine the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have considered a long list. And like I said, this is the last message of Second Peter chapter 2. And I'm grateful because the font has to get smaller and smaller for me to fit Peter's list of the reality of false teachers. We've seen their contrast, that they stand in complete opposition to the holy prophets that were spoken of in chapter 1. We see their constancy. They're, they've always been and will always be until the Lord Jesus returns. We've seen their company. And perhaps one of the most discouraging aspects of false teachers is that they're not outside the church. They're inside the church. False teachers, we're not talking about the atheists and the agnostics and the skeptics. We're talking about those in the church. They love to uh, be among the company of the saints. We've seen their code as they want to introduce what Peter calls destructive heresies. We've seen their calamity. They're doomed to swift destruction. Their contamination as they seek to contaminate the church, appealing not to spiritual things, but to those things that please the senses. They tickle the ears of their hearers. We've seen their conspiracy, that they will use false words to exploit others and exploit the church, not for the glory of God, but for their own personal gain. We've seen again their condemnation, where God says he'll bring judgment on them. We've seen their condition, that they are just as much in, pun in the place of punishment as the angels that God punished uh, back in Genesis chapter 6, and just as much as he brought condemnation upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen their confinement, that God is able to rescue the godly from the false teachers, and he will keep false teachers bound until the day of judgment. We've seen their conceit in verses 10 and 13, that false teachers are arrogant, believing themselves capable of doing things that not even the angels in heaven would say they would do. We've seen their conduct, that they will actually begin to flaunt not righteousness, but some sin justifying their ungodly behavior and encouraging others to follow with them. We've seen their covetousness, that ultimately what they do is for the gain of money or to satisfy themselves, not for the best interest of others. And finally, we've seen their cunning, that they are, they are deceptive charlatans promising everything and ultimately delivering nothing but death and condemnation. And as this lengthy list shows, there are many things in this list that ought to concern every one of us as readers. These things ought to be little warning lights that if you see any of these things, you begin to examine all the more carefully. For if one, for one, if anyone reading this list happens to be a false teacher, then you've been put on notice. Your doom is sure. Your destruction is coming. Eternal death, separation from the bliss and salvation of God 
is what you have to look forward to. Yet another concern for the reader is not necessarily that, that we ourselves may be false teachers, but whether or not we have been influenced by false teachers, whether or not we've bought into some of the lies that are perpetrated in the church but are not true to Scripture. Throughout these several weeks, we have considered what Peter is teaching here, and I've been careful to appoint not to to name names and not to name churches or so-called branches of Christianity that are ultimately not Christianity at all. I read an interesting quote from John MacArthur this morning in, in uh, my reading, and he made this comment, and it should, uh, it should be a concern if you are not walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote that a positive response to Jesus should never be taken as proof of authentic trust in him. There is a shallow, fickle brand of belief that is not saving faith. So you may name the name of Christ, but if you see any of these things in your life, if you do not see what God says are the evidences of Christ in you, the hope of glory, then you need to rethink who you're listening to. There's a nagging problem, though, when we start to... Uh, by not making specific references to who these false teachers are among us today, and that is that the scripture is clear. Paul says it in Acts chapter 20. Peter says it here in our text. The, uh, uh, Jude says it in Jude chapter 1, that these false teachers, again, they're in the church. There may be some here, I don't know, but we're talking about in what we call the church. They are already here. And I feel a little bit like this is a, a struggle because I've not helped the saints here at Hope CBC if we don't identify what some of these false teachings are. Yet, the danger of identifying these false teachers and teachings is that if I'm too broad, it doesn't mean much of anything at all. And if I'm too specific, I run the risk of perhaps offending some of you who say, well, wait, 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 why would you say this person is a false teacher? As for Jude, the parallel letter to 2 Peter uh, has pointed out, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Please be assured that my objective is not to offend anybody today. My objective is simply to proclaim the truth so that you yourself can go and examine and see if what I'm saying is so. Because there are too many within Christendom that are not intent on the spiritual welfare of the people, but upon propagating themselves. There are too many that are not building up the kingdom of Christ. They're simply building up their own little kingdoms at the expense of the kingdom, the true kingdom of Christ. So let me start off by reminding you that one of the key characteristics that is true of all false teachers as is stated in the word of God. It's found here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So I just want you to look up at the beginning of the chapter because we're kind of wrapping all of this up. What is a key characteristic of a false teacher? This will always be true. False teachers are those who, according to verse 1, secretly introduce destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. Now, that may seem pretty straightforward, but the way they do that can be very deceptive. Let me just talk about a couple of these. First, the introduction and propagation of what Peter calls destructive heresies, or literally heresies of destruction. What is a heresy? A heresy is a false teaching. It is a teaching that's contrary to what the Bible actually teaches, but it's couched as though it was from the scripture itself. We might define a heresy as an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of truth, and it will lead to the division and formation of sex within the church. Why is the church so divided? Because of the introduction of destructive heresies. It is an opinion which is substituted for submission to the power of the truth. When we begin to think we can listen to the traditions of men or the traditions of a church or just the opinions of a group of people rather than go to the word of God, we have found ourselves influenced by false teaching. 
Such teachers have exchanged the truth of God's word for their own self-willed, self-gratifying opinions. Well, it leads to a second concern because we want to avoid the destructive heresies in the church, but that's one of the things they'll do. You'll see that they're, they're constantly trying to undermine what you would understand as the historic teachings of the church. But secondly, they deny Christ as master and Lord. This is what Peter wrote, that such teachers, they're even denying the master, Christ, who bought them. While such teachers may give lip service to submitting to Christ, they are not. They deny that he's master. They reveal that they have a different master. There's a different motivation for them than Christ. They deny his lordship and, the subst- and, and then they substitute their own ideas and their own theology in the place of what scripture teaches. False teachers distort the truth. Why? they're trying to get their own agenda I, I, I can try to use scripture if I were a false teacher to, to get you to think a certain way so as well now you'll send in that extra check and now you might think that I can do something for you which the Bible says I can't do for you at all they distort the truth to accomplish their agendas They can convince the gullible to believe their lies, false teachers, and the religions they promote are nothing but cheap knockoffs, religious counterfeits, and yet a 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 2, the next verse tells us, not a few, but many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. May it never be. May we as a people be resolved that the truth of God would never be maligned because we have followed sensuality rather than spirituality. Beloved, whenever Christ's person or work is marginalized, wherever Christ is shared, his glory is shared with others, whether it be Mary or the saints or even ourselves, you can be assured positively that there's false teaching. We do well to remember that false teachers do not generally openly oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll say they believe the gospel. They will say they preach the gospel. They will say they believe the gospel. They will claim that what they have, though, is the true interpretation of the gospel. And yet, when you compare it to what scripture teaches, if you will dig in, you will find it misrepresents it. Or it offers a hollow and inadequate message that does not save a soul. It does not result in a change of heart, a change of being. It does not look to Christ and Christ alone. It looks to Christ plus what maybe I can do, what I can add, what I can do to uh, impress God. It seeks to satisfy itself. There's nothing greater. You, you have little kids, and they do something for you that pleases you, and what are they like? They're like, this pleases me. I did something to please you, and I'm proud as punch. Okay? There's no proud as punch when it comes to our salvation. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where do we find these kinds of opinions of men? Where do we find traditions that run counterintuitive to the word of God, what God's word says? Some are easy to identify. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness proclaim a diminished view of Christ as compared to the scripture. We we see uh, to the dismay of many that even the Roman Catholic Church will deny the supremacy of Christ and the uniqueness of Christ because it's shared with the exaltation of Mary but according to the word of God we are not to fall to the traditions of men it is Christ alone there's one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus no one else can take his place he shares his glory with no one according to God's holy word in Titus 2:13 Jesus is our great savior There is no co-redemptrix. There is no other person. As the Lord has made clear in Isaiah 43, 11, he says, I, even I, the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. 
I take God at his word, and I believe that there is one Savior, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we proclaim Christ. This is why we proclaim Christ alone, not Christ plus my works, not Christ plus the merits of others, not Christ plus the church, Christ and Christ alone. Any teacher, any religious group that teaches otherwise is teaching falsehood. And so, Seventh-day Adventism is a false teaching as they add adherence to the Old Testament law as necessary for salvation. And that means that Christ's work alone is not sufficient to save, but we must do something in addition to Christ. As the great Puritan preacher, and many of you have heard this quote before, Jonathan Edwards has said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Do we get it? We are weak. We are empty. We are just covered in sin. We are helpless and hopeless according to Romans chapter 5. We are enemies of God, yet God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were still hostile and alienated and separated from God, God, Christ Jesus died for us. Peter is so keenly concerned that his readers know that salvation is in Christ alone that he starts the letter with these words of chapter 1, verse 3. Do you remember them? Chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, Seeing that Christ's divine power, nothing of ourselves, has been granted, bestowed to us everything. We lack nothing pertaining to life and godliness. How? Is it through our efforts? Do we have everything we need to live for God because of something in us? No. It says in chapter 1, verse 3, it is, it is through the true knowledge of Christ who called us, who summoned us by his own glory and his own excellence. I can say if you can't get past that verse, you can't know salvation. It is Christ's divine power, not yours. It is what Christ has given, not what you can give. It's everything you need, nothing that we have. It is for all of life and godliness, and it comes from one source only, the true knowledge of Christ as presented in the Scripture. Well, all of this brings us to our final characteristic that Peter states is true of all false teachers. And so this morning we consider the 15th of these points, their corruption, their corruption, the corruption of false teachers. We need to be clear that when Peter begins in verse 20, he says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is referencing back in chapter 19 to those who have been overcome to the false teachers who are overcome, who promise, hey, I'm going to give you freedom if you do it the way I say instead of what Scripture says, but they're actually condemning themselves, enslaving themselves to the very sin that they say I'm promising to deliver you from. When Peter speaks about this, he's speaking about false teachers. He's not speaking about atheists, those who deny the existence of God. That's not what Peter has in mind. He's not speaking of agnostics or skeptics, those who are uncertain about the existence of God. No, false teachers are those who are outwardly religious and have, you're ready for this, they've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But as I read that MacArthur quote, a positive response to Jesus should never be taken as proof of authentic trust in him. There is a shallow, fickle brand of belief that is not saving faith, and we will answer the question, how do I know that the faith I have is not shallow, but it is deep and it is true? We'll answer that question if you hang on for just a little longer. Probably a long time for me. But. False teachers are people who claim to know much about Christ. They seek to convince others of their deep spiritual insights, supposedly of Christ. These people who claim to speak for Christ they do so because they'll say things like, well, Christ has spoken directly to me. These are people who say God has revealed himself, his truth to me directly in some way that's not typically available to others. Beloved, there's only one way which God reveals his truth. 
And if I tell you that I have a revelation from God and it's not from this, then kick me out of this pulpit. It's, it's God's word. Well, notice what Peter tells us about these false teachers beginning in verse 20. And he tells us that false teachers possess a knowledge of Christ, but we're going to put an adjective in front of it, and I'll explain why it is. They have a knowledge of Christ, but it's an insufficient knowledge. You know, you can know about Christ, but if you don't know the right things about Christ, you won't be saved. Verse 20 begins uniquely with Peter stating that there is a benefit. Do you see this? A benefit, at least initially, in following Christ. These false teachers, when they began with their own self-generated efforts to follow Christ, reap the benefits. It says that they have escaped the defilement of the world. There was a moment in their walk that they actually saw the benefit of following Christ, and they tried to separate themselves from the defilement of the world. How did they do this? Peter goes on to say, how, how does anybody separate themselves from that which is evil? Paul, Peter says it's by the knowledge of Christ. The only way, reason we know what is good versus what is bad, what is right versus what is wrong, is because of the revelation of God's word. I find it amazing when a secular world will use words like, that is evil. Well, they're borrowing from the word of God what they say they don't even believe. Because the only way we can know good and bad, right and wrong, is by him who has told us what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. According these now, according to verse 19, these slaves of corruption were at least making some effort to follow Christ. And you've known these kinds of people, have you not? People that have come to the church and they, they make some kind of profession of Christ. Some of these are really easy to see. And they, they make some changes in their life. And they talk about how wonderful it is to know Jesus. And then uh, a month goes by or six months go by. And what happens? They leave. Because they can make a profession. But it doesn't mean anything until we see the evidence which we will get to in just a moment. These had left their former pursuits of paganism. These false teachers had left their unbelief for a time, along with all the defilements and contaminations by having partaken previously of what was contrary to the revealed will of God. But what we learn here, and what I want to stress, is that some knowledge of Christ can often lead to some temporary forsaking of immoral behavior. You can introduce somebody to the teachings of Christ and they may feel guilt and they may feel shame and they will begin to try to clean their life up. But where does that always lead? I can never clean it enough. The stains run too deep and so frustration will kick in. If that knowledge of Christ is limited, if it's insufficient, if it's not being pursued and if it's not, beloved, coupled with genuine faith, we'll come to see that it leads to the ruin of a soul, not the remedy for the soul. As the Puritan Thomas Watson has so eloquently put it, knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. You hear that? Knowledge of Christ without repentance, without a true and lasting change of will and behavior, will be but a torch that lights your path to hell. There is a time, there was a time when these false teachers in the church may have seemed to follow Christ, but how, and how could it be perceived otherwise? Aren't we, we Christians, we just, we want to believe the best of people, do we not? Somebody comes in and I believe in Christ. I've shared the story before of one of the men in our church, we were doing a Bible study at 6 a.m., going through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology at 6 a.m. in the morning. I'm trying to get my head wrapped around that. But, but one morning, I've shared the story before, but we were talking about, uh, about Christ and Christology, and this man from the, uh, uh, across the way said, Are you all talking about Jesus Christ? And, well, yeah. And uh, said, Well, I believe in Jesus. And one of the men stood up from our group, and he walked over to him. He says, you believe in Jesus? He said, yeah, I do. And then this man from our group said, 
which one? And he sat down and he spent the rest of his time having a conversation with this man and was seeking to help this man see that the Jesus that he said he believed wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. There are those who seem to follow Christ. They proclaim it. They're in the church. They're professing Christ. These false teachers, and of course those who would be like them, they don't introduce themselves by saying, Hi, I'm a psychic, and I believe in Jesus. They don't say that I'm a pagan priest or a Hindu guru. They couch all of their, their teachings with the verbiage of Christ. But what I find interesting is what Peter does here, the extent to which Peter states their relationship to Christ. Yes, they escaped for a time from the world's defilements, but this was done how? By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what I want you to take close note of, and we might miss this if we're not careful, is that while they possess a knowledge of Christ, Peter does not refer to such a knowledge in the same way as he's referred to the knowledge of believers. True believers, Peter adds something else. Recall how Peter puts it back in chapter 1. Genuine believers do not simply have a knowledge of Christ, as we see in our text there, but, in, but they, uh, in chapter 1, verse 3 again, it says uh, the true or genuine knowledge of him. We possess the true or genuine knowledge. You see that little adjective there in front of it. In chapter two, Second uh, uh, Peter one verse eight, Peter writes, "For if these qualities, the manifestations of being saved by Christ, and we're going to talk about those, if if those evidences are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in what, in the true, in the genuine, in the genuine article of knowledge of Christ, the the fullness of the knowledge that you need to be saved." When we read here in Second Peter chapter two verse twenty. We don't read that false teachers ever had a true knowledge of Christ. They simply have what? A knowledge. The point is this. False teachers may well have some knowledge of Christ, but they are content with an insufficient knowledge, an erroneous knowledge, an incomplete knowledge of Christ. And while any knowledge of Christ may lead somebody to temporary changes of life and attitude, as we're about to see, you cannot sustain a life of living for Christ unless you truly know Christ. It's impossible. This contentment with an insufficient knowledge of Christ is what plagues so many in the church today. There are too many that come to church and they say, well, I, I know enough about Christ, I think, to be okay. Man, I don't want to just know if I just barely know enough. I want to make sure. I want to be in depth. I want to be plunged into the waters of the truth of Christ. So many know some things about Christ, but they really do not know Christ for who he truly is. So many, perhaps some of you, know enough about Christ that it's caused you to make some temporary changes in there, in there in your life. But because you do not truly know him, you also know you've never truly been changed. You've never truly been born again. You don't have a passion to live every aspect of your life for Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote something so profound. Whether then you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And if your heart is not content and not set on doing all to the glory of God, you might have to question, have I really come to know him? Have I truly come to know him? Have I ever been regenerated? Have I ever been made, truly made, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares, into a new creation where my old way of thinking is now gone and new life and new attitudes and new passions and new aims and purposes? Have come. Well, Pastor, how can I know if my knowledge of Christ is insufficient? Isn't that the legitimate question? How can I know whether my knowledge is sufficient? Isn't, isn't that what we need to know? Well, I draw your attention back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Are you being diligent? Are you applying maximum effort so that in your faith you are supplying 
and see, see this, you're orchestrating moral excellence, the very moral attitudes and behaviors of Christ. I know we've talked about this before, but I'm asking as a congregation, are we pursuing this? This is the evidence. Am I pursuing the moral excellence of Christ, the very attitudes and behaviors of Christ? And then to that, am I supplying knowledge, that increasing knowledge of Christ's person and work? And then am I seeing that relate, uh, turn into self-control, a forsaking of the sins that so easily entangle me? You know what your sins are, right? Do you see that Christ is giving you victory over those? And then perseverance, a God-given intent that says, I may stumble, I may sin, but I will never give up. I will never give out. I will never give over by the grace of God. He will keep me. And then that leads to, bro- to godliness, the pursuit of all moral goodness of God, and that to brotherly kindness, the practice and affection and attention toward other believers in the church. And then that leads to love, that one-way unconditional act of the will and attitude of the heart that seeks the highest good for one another in the, in the congregation regardless of the cost and all to the glory of God. Then we read it again in verse 8, for if these qualities, if these manifestations of being saved, this is the true knowledge of Christ. And if these are yours, and if you see them increasing, then they render you, Peter says, neither useless nor unfruitful in what? The true knowledge. I don't want a false knowledge. I don't want half-truths. You should not be content with that. How many of you like to be told half-truths? And there are too many in the church that are content with half-truths. And there are too many today around the world preaching half-truths. And Paul in Acts chapter 20, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders and he's leaving, he said, I did not shrink away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is what we should desire, the whole counsel of God. We see here in 2 Peter 2 how the lives and attitudes of the false teachers simply will not match up with those who have the true knowledge of Christ. That's really been the the whole purpose between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is this contrast. So let me ask you, do you have the true knowledge of Christ? How can I know, Pastor? How are you doing with the list? Is this what you're seeing in your life? Or do you only have what what I call the, the temporary, insufficient knowledge of Christ? You'll hear something a preacher says one day and like, oh, I gotta, I, I gotta I gotta clean up my life. Well, there's a lie. You can't clean up your life. I got to make some changes in my life. Well, you can make some changes, but you can't change the one thing that needs to be changed, and that is your sinful, stubborn heart. What is the danger, then, of an insufficient knowledge of Christ that brings us to our second point? Here's the danger. False teachers fall into an inevitable departure from Christ. If you are content with an insufficient knowledge of Christ, you will fall away from Christ. The danger, according to the end of verse 20, is that they, notice what Peter says, they, the false teachers, are again entangled in them, the defilements of the world, and this time they're eaten up. They're overcome. Throughout chapter 2, Peter has demonstrated how false teachers and their followers are again over and over and over entangled in the, in the ways of the world. Notice in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that they despise authority. In verses 12 through 14, it says they indulge the flesh and its desires. In verses 15 and 16, they go astray. In verses 17 through 19, they can't speak anything of depth. They are empty talkers. And the result of the once again being entangled, the word means to be ensnared, entwined, uh, in, and wrapped up in something by the defilements of the world is a condition that Peter says, when you go back to it, when you've left it temporarily, and then you go back to it, he says that they are now overcome 
And the word overcome means they are made lower or inferior. So why would you want to follow somebody who's lower and inferior? And then he states this, that the last state, this last condition of being overcome by that which they've returned to has become worse for them than their first condition, which was simply unbelief. This is woeful unbelief. We're being told that there comes a time when false teachers will find themselves in a worse position than they were before they had ever heard anything about Christ at all. Beginning in, back in, uh, uh, oh, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter clarifies what he means. My notes were wrong, so. Uh, chapter 2, verse 21, Peter Peter clarifies what he means. Look at verse 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, that is not to know Christ, than having known it and to turn away from the holy commandments handed on to them. These are people who have been exposed to the truth. These are people that have sat in the pews. They've heard the gospel proclaimed. These are people who have heard the truth yet rejected it. He says that they turn from the holy commandment, which is really a reference into the scriptures, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the great command that Jesus gave as he began his public ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, at, and once this happens, their condition, Peter says, is worse than it was before. Now, where did Peter come up with this? And Peter just, is this Peter's opinion? Well, we know it's not. He's moved by the Holy Spirit, so it comes from God. But I believe that he actually learned this lesson from the Lord Jesus himself. We find our Lord Jesus Christ teaching this very truth. For example, after Judas betrayed Jesus, having been Judas being a firsthand eyewitness, right? Jesus, uh, Judas saw all the miracles. Jesus or Judas uh, heard all of the teachings, but he betrayed Jesus. And Jesus said of him this, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It's going to be so bad for Judas, it would have been better if he had not been born. Recall that as Jesus walked through the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, he performed many miracles among the people. He was putting on a, a show, if you want to use that kind of vernacular. The people should have been astonished. They should have said, here is the Messiah. Here is God with us. He did it before their very eyes. Yet the people did not repent of their wickedness. Therefore, Jesus spoke of a greater condemnation that would come upon them. And he says something incredible in Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 through 24. Follow along. He, he pronounces woes. These are curses. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred, listen to this, in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for, uh, for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Can you begin to get your head wrapped around that? What our country is going through today is the sodomy that is being plaguing our culture today. And yet, would we stop to think that false teaching deserves a greater punishment than all of the nonsense that we're seeing perpetrated in our culture today? In Luke 11, and continuing, uh, in Luke 11, Jesus had an encounter with a Pharisee, with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees in that account said that he was casting out demons by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons. And listen to how Jesus responds to their charge in Luke 11, verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. 
And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Does that sound familiar? Exactly where Peter's going. It's the same idea as found in our text. In Luke 11, the man had one demon and it was cast out. Certainly, his life improved by not having the one demon. Would you agree? But as the demon returned, it brought along seven other more vile demons. And the man was worse off than before. And the lesson is it's better to have one demon than eight. But I would say it's better to have no demons than any. We see the same teaching in Hebrews 10, 28, where we read, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? There is condemnation for any who will set aside the law of Moses. But the law of Moses is nothing compared to trampling the true blood of Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is the fate awaiting false teachers. And even more severe punishment. Why? Because they heard and knew, knew this, had this knowledge, but it was in a superficial way. And the truth that they did have, they turned their back upon it. Beloved, it's one thing to turn away from Moses. It's quite another thing to turn away from Christ. At one time, their limited knowledge of Christ caused them this temporary change to step out from their former sins. But having returned to the cesspool of sin and partaken of it, they now await an even worse judgment. If you are here today and you have known something about Christ, Perhaps you've even made a profession of Christ, yet you know that some of the changes that you've seen that in the past, in your past life, they've been replaced again with a love for the world, a love of money, a love of indulging the things of the flesh. You've seen the, your passion for Christ turn into a, a passion and pursuit of the things of this earth. And I say to you, awaken and repent. Call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, to be changed in your thinking, to be changed in your behavior. False teachers have an insufficient knowledge of Christ that will inevitably lead them to ruin. But today, I say to all in this room, you need not be ruined if you've been influenced by false teaching. Today is the day of salvation. Well, it leads us to the last and final consideration that false teachers face an incurable Corruption. False teachers face an incurable corruption. We have in verse 22 what Peter entitles true proverb. He says, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So it, Peter now illustrates the fate of false teachers by speaking of dogs and hogs. Sorry, you Arkansas Razorback fans. In the days of Peter, dogs were not man's best friend. Dogs were filthy, mangy, pesky animals, sometimes running in packs. We might consider them more coyote-like. Pigs didn't fare much better. Both were seen as filthy, useless animals. The Jews, of course, wouldn't eat either one of them. And so for Peter to compare false teachers to dogs and hogs would be the highest form of insult he could come up with. Peter first compares the false teachers to dogs, and it's great. The worst thing you can call a person a dog or call them a hog, this would be the worst thing that Peter can do. But then Peter takes it the next step. Let's make it even worse than just calling you a dog or a hog. What does he do? He compares false teachers to dogs, saying, like a dog, you return to your own vomit. It's a quotation from Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool that repeats his folly. 
Well, that's what the false teachers have done. They, they saw some benefit in following Christ. They never truly believed, though, so then they returned to their former ways. I've had dogs, and if you're a cat lover, cats do this too. It's the most disgusting thing ever. I've seen both dogs and cats perform this most vile act. The thought of it makes my stomach turn. If you're there while it's happening, you're like, ew, technical term. Seeing it is even worse. But that's the point. This is exactly what Peter's driving at. We are supposed to feel disgust. Look at the dog vomit up. Look at the dog now gleefully lapping up the vomit. And you go, ew. Look at the false teachers and how they are going back to the things of this world. And you should go, ew. False teachers are those who for a time escape their corruption, we've read. They have a lucid moment when, when they vomited it up. If there's something bad in the stomach, you want it. Have you ever been like, oh, I wish I could just throw up and get this over with? And you throw up and you're like, yay, that's over with. I can start to feel better now. Would you ever think about going back to it? Well, see, these false teachers, they threw it up. They threw up the badness of the world, and they went, oh, I'm glad I have that over with. It's no longer part of me. But then their minds never being truly changed by Christ, they glance back at the vomit. doesn't look so bad. And you say, ooh. But if you have a depraved mind, if you're not changed by Christ, vomit looks good. And that's the whole point. They see their former way of life and they lick it back up and they ingest it once again. But unlike a dog or a cat that must somehow think it's natural and good to do this, these false teachers lap up their nastiness with the full knowledge that what they're doing is wrong. And when my cat tries to do this, I don't just sit there and watch. Man, I'm like running after them. Get out of there. Stop doing that. This is a new depth of corruption. They prefer, listen, they prefer their own vomit to the victory that could be theirs in Christ. Can you think of any better contrast? You can either have the full victory of Christ or you can return and lap up your own vomit. You choose. Well, now if we're not repulsed enough, Peter goes on to quote another proverb. A sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. The point being made here is that a pig's nature is not to remain clean. Pigs don't want to be clean. Pigs want to be dirty. That's what they do. So they return it. It doesn't matter. You can wash the pig all you want. It's the first chance that pig has to go back to the mud and the mire and the muck and the yuck. Boom. The disgusting actions of dogs and hogs speaks to the nature of these animals. It's their nature to do these nasty things. And interestingly enough, those who are saved are never referred to as dogs or hogs. We're referred to as sheep. And one thing I know that sheep don't do is return to their vomit. While there is aspects of being a sheep that are not very flattering, sheep do not return to their own vomit, and they do not like to wallow in the mire. It is not in their nature. Their nature, what is the nature of a sheep? To follow, to follow the shepherd. As we wrap up the second chapter of, of Peter, uh, Second Peter, let me address a few matters. First, to answer the question as to whether or not false teachers were ever saved, the answer is emphatically no, they were never saved. It is one thing to trick others into thinking you are saved. It is quite another thing to be saved. Therefore, we cannot conclude that false teachers are those who ever lost their salvation because they never had salvation to begin with. It is true that false teachers have a knowledge of Jesus Christ, but none of the verses in 2 Peter 2 describing false teachers ever couples anything of their doing with faith. 
It is possible to know much about Christ, yet without faith in Christ, without believing in who he is and what he has done, to change people living in sin and death, to move them to godliness and life, such people, the Apostle Paul says, are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Recall that the words, recall the words of James chapter 2, verse 19 that says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Not all belief is saving belief. And that's the point that we're trying to drive here. Not all belief is saving belief. The demons are not saved, but they believe. Are you here today saying, I believe, but you have not been changed, then you've not been saved. Until you see the Spirit of Christ work in you, the fruit of the Spirit, true love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Until you see the qualities that we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7 through 7, worked out in your life, I assure you, you do not possess eternal life. In Peter's illustration, note that the dog that vomited was still, in the end, a dirty dog that lapped up its vomit. Note that the pig that was washed in the end is still a pig that loved the muck and the mire. So it is for false teachers. Because they've never experienced being born again, they've never been made into a new creature. They've never been changed by God, and for a time they may change a few things in their lives, trying to mimic Christ on their own, but without the Holy Spirit of God within them, they cannot maintain that. Beloved, to follow Christ rightly. You must be born again. And so ends the second chapter of Second Peter. The testimony of Peter is to paint the terrible condition and fate of false teachers to the point that you would say, I don't want to be a false teacher. I don't want to follow a false teacher. But as we end, let me make this final observation about this chapter. As we have seen, at some point, these false teachers knew something of the truth of God and so verse 20 again tells us they've escaped the defilements of the world. They came into possess some knowledge of Christ and were even able to progress to a point of becoming a teacher in the church. Can you imagine that? But in the course of time, they once again became entangled by the world and they turned away from the way of righteousness. They began to be dictated not by the word of God, but by, by their flesh rather than the master who bought them. But, what make, but to make matters worse, such false teachers, we read, those who have actually denied Christ are still involved in the church. They're still causing damage to the church. Secretly introducing, as we began saying, these destructive heresies, these false teachings. Meanwhile, they'll, they'll seek to carouse with you, enticing the unstable souls within the church to... Join them in their improper living. They promise freedom, exploiting others with empty words, polluting the church, and setting forth a terrible example by their living. They indulge the flesh. They have eyes of adultery. Their hearts are trained in greed. They're self-willed. They act like unreasoning animals. Such are the stains and blemishes in their moral behavior. Rather than being monuments of Christ's righteousness, they are actually slaves of sinful corruption. Such behavior by some in the church caused us to ask many questions, the greatest of which is, how is it that some people who taste righteousness, who hear the truth, end up denying it and forsaking it? And the short answer, beloved, is that such people are driven more by their own lust than they are driven by the word of God. So I ask you, what drives you? God and his word? Or you and your word? You and your opinions? You and your thoughts? Beloved, the embracing of false teaching always leads to false living. In other words, when a person wants to live in a way that's contrary to the word of God, mark this, they will develop a theology, a false teaching that justifies their poor living. 
They will twist the words of scripture to say, I can live this way. I can be a homosexual practicing and still be loved by God and be a a priest in a church or a pastor. No, you can't. No one falls, though, into false teaching merely by reading their Bibles and coming up with wrong conclusions. Rather, in order to justify their lifestyles, people seek for a theology that allows them to live the way they desire. Another question that arises is why is it that false teachers involve themselves in the church rather than outside the church? Beloved, let us never forget that Satan still desires to destroy the church and he will use anything and everything to accomplish the task. And here's the sad note. One of his most effective tactics is to infiltrate the church and to find those who are gullible to find those who are half-hearted and to deceive them. How do we protect ourselves from this threat of false teachers who, according to God's word, are present in the church? Beloved, we must be those who, according to 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. False teachers do not grow in grace, and they do not grow in the knowledge of Christ. That's We must remember that that's how the letter begins, that Christ has granted to us everything pertaining to what? To life and godliness. He tells us what this godliness looks like. We've looked at it over and over in in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And then in verse 10 of chapter 1, we're told that as we practice these things, we are making sure that God has actually called us and has chosen us. In other words, As we see the evidences of God's grace at work in our lives, we can be sure that we have believed, that we have trusted in Christ, in Christ alone. And the opposite is true. If you are not growing in godliness, if you are not seeing God's grace worked out in your life, then you can have no assurance that you are a believer at all. In the case of these false teachers, it is is their lives the way they live their lives that gives them away. You might be able to hide things from me. You may be able to come here on a Sunday morning or meet me for a, a lunch and you can and prop up your, your own facade of righteousness. But I ask you to consider right now, do you regard yourself as growing in godliness? Do you see yourself living the life that's been described in Second Peter. Since false teachers are not growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, we know that they're not saved. And so how about you? Do you know of God's choosing and calling of you? Do you see God working out that list of Second Peter 1, 5 through 7? If so, I say praise the Lord. Borrowing from the Apostle Paul, I'll say what? Excel still more. To borrow from Peter, I will say, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you do not see those things, I call you to repent of your sin, to look to Christ who spilled his own blood to redeem you, to purchase you off the slave market of sin, to make you one of his own, not to continue to be a dirty dog or a dirty hog, but one of his sheep who listen to and follow his voice. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how pointed it is. We thank you that it challenges us. It can make us feel most uncomfortable as we come to recognize that the best we would ever be are sinners. We can't make ourselves any better than that, any more than that, any less than that. But Father God, you sent your son Jesus Christ to make us something different. That you take that which is dead in their trespasses and sins and you make it alive together with Christ Jesus. That you transfer us from death to life, from darkness to light, from sinfulness to righteousness. Father God, I pray that we as your people would come to recognize your working out the qualities of the regenerate, the qualities of those who are saved. 
may we make note of it not only in ourselves, but may we make note of it as we see it in the lives of others, that we be encouraging and building up one another in the most holy faith. And Father, we offer up this prayer for those who have yet to bow the knee to Christ and confess with their mouth that he is Lord. May today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that you so fill their minds with Christ that they desire nothing else but to give themselves over to surrender, to confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you raised Jesus from the dead as the one and only satisfaction for their sins. That they would believe today that they are no longer to live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again for their sake. That they would no longer be their own to live for themselves, but to live by the power of Christ for the glory of Christ. Father God, I pray that you would open the eyes of the heart to receive such truth and to respond. Father God, I pray that you would now consecrate us, that you would lead us into the truth, that you would lead us into the way in which we ought to conduct our lives to your glory, to the exaltation of Christ, and to the building up of your church as we ask and pray this in his name.